Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hola, hello. How's everybody doing? Uh, Maybe it's just me, but uh, I have really never considered friendship to be an urgent psychological and physiological issue. That view, which I held more subconsciously than consciously, is completely wrongheaded, of course. If I've learned one thing hosting this show over the past few years, it's that the quality of your relationships determines the quality of your life. I picked that expression up from the great psychotherapist, Esther Perel, just to give credit where it's due. In any event, making and keeping friends is truly an urgent issue. And sadly, in many ways, it is harder now than ever. Of course, the pandemic has made keeping in touch with people, at least face-to-face, in meaningful ways, very hard. Even before that, though, loneliness and disconnection was on the rise. Our society just really is not constructed for social connection. In fact, recent data suggests we're in something of a friendship crisis, with many of us reporting that we have fewer close friends than ever. So what can you do about all of this? I have three pieces of good news. First, my guest today is a world-renowned expert on human relationships. He has a ton of fascinating research findings and practical tips for upping your friendship game. Second, next week, we're kicking off a brand new series of episodes here on the podcast, focusing on one of the foundations of all successful human relationships, kindness. Uh, This new series is a collaboration with the very funny show Ted Lasso, which airs on Apple TV+. In fact, we're calling it the Ted Lasso series. Just to say, if you haven't seen that show and you have no plans to see that show, it's fine. You'll get tons out of this series. Uh, Just so you know, the show is all about an American football coach who takes a job coaching soccer in England. Hilarity ensues. What saves him, really, is that he's a very, very nice guy. And there is a common misconception that nice guys always finish last or that kindness is somehow soft or fluffy. But we're going to be bringing on some top scientists from Berkeley and from Stanford who are going to talk about how the research suggests that compassionate people are actually happier, healthier, and more successful. And we're going to have a bonus meditation from the one and only Sharon Salzberg. And we're going to introduce you to a phenomenal Dharma teacher who will be making a TPH podcast debut. So I'm looking forward to that. hope you Hope you'll join us for that. And my final piece of news is that the week after we do the Ted Lasso series here on the podcast, we're going to launch a little Ted Lasso challenge over on the 10% Happier app. Every day during the challenge, you'll get a little video featuring uh, yours truly, along with uh, some short clips from the Ted Lasso show explaining how you can use kindness to improve your relationships with your family, your friends, yourself. And then after the video, you'll get a powerful and bespoke guided meditation that will help you practice what you just learned. This challenge, the Ted Lasso Challenge, will be short and sweet, just five days, so you can commit to it, complete it, and reap the benefits in short order. We we really do think we've cooked up something pretty special here. We hope you'll uh, be part of it. You can download the 10% Happier app wherever you get your apps and, uh, and get excited for the Ted Lasso Challenge to launch on September 7th. Okay, let's uh, let's circle back now to the first piece of good news. Today's guest, uh, he is one of the world's leading experts on relationships. As I said, his name is Robin Dunbar. He's an emeritus professor of evolutionary psychology at Oxford University. He's the author of numerous books on the development of uh, our species. He's perhaps best known for formulating something called Dunbar's number, which is a measurement of the number of relationships our brain is capable of maintaining at any time. It's actually quite important. He'll explain it better than I have. In this conversation, you're going to hear Professor Dunbar talk about the science behind human relationships, how to make and keep friends, the upsides and downsides of maintaining relationships on social media. Interestingly, he's uh, much less anti-social media than you might guess. We'll talk about the viability of friendships across gender lines and what science says you can do to compensate if you feel you are currently lacking in close friendships. He's also going to touch on another of his very interesting areas of expertise, gossip, which he argues has gotten a bad rap. So without further ado, here we go now with Robin Dunbar. Professor Robin Dunbar, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. 
been looking forward to this. There's so much here to talk about. Uh, let's just start with a, a question I'm sure you've gotten a million times, but I, it's a good way to level set for the audience here. What is Dunbar's number? Essentially, it's the limit on the number of relationships, meaningful relationships that you can have at any one time. So that includes friends, it includes family, most of your extended family probably. It might even include your cat and your dog and your favorite horse, and maybe your favorite soap opera character on TV. If you feel you have a meaningful relationship with them, you talk to them, you feel that they communicate back with you. Usually, of course, most of the people in your number of 150, which is the the, uh, core number for Dunbar's number, are actually real people, of course, and uh, they're people you see on a fairly regular basis. I don't know if you're being somewhat maybe semi-facetious with the TV show thing, but there are people who feel they have an active, ongoing conversation with and relationship with God or Jesus. Oh, absolutely. Yes, uh, absolutely so. Um, And that's... uh, if you like a perfectly reasonable uh, thing to have God or Jesus or, you know, the Virgin Mary, if you're a Catholic, perhaps, or indeed, I, I really am quite serious that some people really do feel that they have relationships with the people on, on TV shows and so on. My grandmother always said goodnight to the newscaster when he said goodnight to her and <laughs> called him by name. And <laughs> I'm sure, sure she felt that he was very much in her circle. I'm maybe not the closest friend she ever had. But, you know, he sat there and she saw him every every night on TV news, the anchor, and, you know, she said goodnight to him. He was part of her social circle. Well, on behalf of newscasters everywhere, given that I am one, at least for now, I appreciate that. My salutations right back at your grandmother. Um, how did you come up with the number 150, though? Well, originally it was predicted off the back of an equation relating the size of Uh, social groups in monkeys and apes, the primates, that's the zoological family to which we belong, and their brain sizes. So species that lived in big social groups had big brains. And out of curiosity, I just plugged human brains into the same equation to see what kind of figure it gave. And it gave a figure of about 150. And um, that just set me going looking to see whether this could possibly be true, because I actually thought it was far too small. After all, we live in, you know, huge cities with tens of millions of people. And I thought, you know, that 150 sounds awfully small for that. But then it transpired eventually when we started looking at the size of personal social networks, the people that you have meaningful relationships with. This is about what that number is. It's somewhere between 100 and, and 200. You know, we can sign out many more people on Facebook than that, but they tend to fall into the category of acquaintances. And of course, we have acquaintances in real life too. We work with a lot of these people. We go out and we'd have a beer with them maybe after work or engage with them over over lunch or the um, water cooler or something, but we probably wouldn't invite them home. So it turns out that um, quite a good definition for this number is the number of people who would feel an obligation to you and a closeness that they would turn up for your bar mitzvah, your wedding, or your funeral. So that's the, uh, Dunbar's number is really your bar mitzvah, stroke wedding, stroke funeral, group size. And indeed, uh, if you look at the um, very nice website that provides data on American weddings, uh, that is exactly the average size of weddings in America. And it's Mm. been very consistent for the last decade. Well, I can't say for the last year, maybe, (laughs) but prior to that, it had been a very, very consistent number. It seems to be sort of the number of people that uh, kind of mean something to you and you'd feel a sense of obligation to them. And you know that if you ask them to do you a favor, they would kind of say yes. They might kind of be a bit grudging, but they do it (laughs) out of obligation to you. So you were initially surprised, you said, at the number 150, because you thought maybe that was a little small. But the numbers get really small when you're talking about truly close, intimate relations. Yes. So it turns out that this number 150 is really just one of a series of numbers, if you like, a series of circles of friendship. So if you imagine yourself as a stone being thrown into the lake, you would have this set of ripples that run out from the stone 
And as the ripples go out, of course, uh, they get bigger. But if you like, the amplitude, the height of the wave gets gradually um, smaller and smaller until it dies away. So your social world bears some relationship to this, really, in the sense that you're surrounded by a series of layers of friendship. And the innermost layers are very small. They're typically about five people on average. But they're really intense relationships. They're what I call the shoulders to cry on friendships. These are the people that, you know, when your world falls apart, they will drop everything to come and pick you up again. But then out beyond that, you get sort of large, progressively larger and larger layers. But the emotional quality of those relationships and the frequency that you see the people in these layers falls away until you get to the 150. And then beyond the 150, we know there are at least three more layers, one at 500, which would include all your acquaintances. Um, and these layers count cumulatively, by the way. So the 500 would also include your 150 inside, but an additional 350 people who you sort of, you know, count as acquaintances, you know them well. Again, as I say, you work with probably a lot of them, might include the kind of barista you buy or you used to buy your latte coffee from on the way to work, and you perhaps pass the time of day and had a brief chat with them. But then out beyond that, uh, there's another layer of people whose faces you can put names to. And then finally, what seems to be the outermost layer takes us out to about 5,000 people is the number of faces you can recognize as having seen them before. Are they complete strangers or have you seen that photograph before? You know, So that kind of layer just inside that of photographs you could put name to will include all sorts of people that you don't really have a meaningful relationship with you know so for all of us for better or for worse Donald Trump sits in there because we've seen him so often on television probably the Queen of England would sit in there because most of us have seen it very familiar but you know if you bumped into them in the street and wandered over and clapped them on the shoulder and said hi there come and have a beer with me they'd probably look a bit surprised and, and maybe some gentleman with a very large bulge under his left armpit would hustle you away rather quickly. Let's just go back to the close friendships. And I, and I want to stress again that you're using friendship in the broadest, sort of most capacious way here that, that it, yes. it can include your romantic partner, it can include oh, yes. your mom, your child, whatever. But four to six or five or whatever the number is, that is not a lot. And as I understand it, your argument is this is a zero-sum thing, that somebody else is going to get knocked out if you add a new, truly close friend. I sometimes say when we use the word friend here, we use it in the Facebook sense. It's anybody you feel you have a relationship with, of course, that is going to include your mom and it's going to include your romantic partner and your granny and as well as your more conventional friends. But these numbers seem to be quite robust. These layers seem to be quite robust. And they're partly because they seem to reflect the brain's ability to handle relationships of a particular emotional closeness. But they're also a consequence of how much time we invest in the relationship. So in order to keep a friendship in particular going, working, if you like, we have to keep engaging with the person somehow or other. Usually, of course, it's in a face-to-face -face way. We see them once or twice a week or whatever it is, and we go out with them, hang out with them. If you don't do that for some reason, perhaps because you've moved away or because you've met somebody else who's more interesting, then the emotional quality of that friendship is going to just decay ever so slowly, but uh, surely. And eventually, if you don't see them for couple of years or so, they will drift down through the layers from being a good friend, probably not your best friend ever, but certainly a good friend will kind of end up as an acquaintance eventually, somebody you once knew, but you haven't seen for ages, so you don't really know what they're doing these days. And that kind of movement uh, goes on all the time. It's particularly dramatic, I think, among late high school, early college age group where, you know, they're meeting lots of new people. So we reckon there's about a 30% turnover in the position of friends in their social networks every year. And it's true of kind of us older folk, if I can use the word politely in this context. Our friendships change over time too. And in fact, even our family relationships, we kind of see less of somebody because we're seeing more of somebody else and we feel more engaged with, with, with the new person and, and, and you know, they fit better with our, our social interests, if you like. 
Um, and this constant change upwards and downwards is just going on all the time. Usually the people at the very, very centre remain fairly stable for very long periods. But um, it is a dynamic social world that we live in. How are you defining close friends? What, what are the metrics that are important? Well, we use a very simple rating metric, which is simply a, a one to 10 scale. How emotionally close do you feel to this person where 10 is effectively, I love them dearly. And one is, I'm kind of neutral. It's, there's no negative component to it. It's kind of neutral up to, I love them dearly. And if you ask people to rate everybody that they know on this scale, then you see these layers pop out quite nicely. And that scale then turns out to correlate very nicely with the time devoted to that person. So the people you are emotionally closest to, you see most often. So that means that we can then use kind of just the frequency with which people contact each other, be that phone, be that uh, posting, a named posting on social media, be that a text, any kind of um, contact, you can pick up the same layers, the same frequencies of contact. We've telephoned people with the same frequencies as we see them, and we text them at the same frequencies as we see them. We post to them on social media with more or less the same frequencies as we see them. It's an extremely robust effect. So uh, one implication of that, of course, is that Social media in general and digital media in general, so including, you know, cell phones and the like, substitute quite well, it seems, for face-to-face contacts. They're not quite as effective or quite as good. We don't feel so satisfied by a virtual meeting as we do with a face-to-face meeting. But um, as a default, as you might say, the digital world kind of does its job pretty well on the whole. It's interesting because most of the people come on this show are pretty anti not anti, but, you know, a wary of technology. It sounds like you're a little bit more open. I guess I'm kind of neutral. I mean, I actually think it does do a good job in the sense that it does allow us to keep contact with friends who are not easy to see in a face-to-face situation because they've moved away, perhaps. And that's good and that's kind of healthy. But I do think it has a downside quite clearly. And one of those is kind of an obvious one, really, because... People kind of make this mistake often, I think, is, you know, if a very good friend moves away, one of your shoulders to cry on friends, that relationship is so important to you is you, they try and keep it going through telephone calls and social media and, and so on. When you have to ask whether they might not be better finding a new shoulder to cry on just round the corner, as it were, whom, whom they, you know, when their world falls apart, they can walk round the block and knock on their door and say, you know, give us a hug or you know, why don't we go out and have a a coffee somewhere and and talk through, you know, the issues I have, as it were, and and you can help me. You know, that physical access, as it were, face-to-face access, where you can sort of have a hug from them and and all these other things that we do with with close uh, friendships really is very important. And and you can't do that on the digital world. So you're basically saying something similar to what I believe Crosby, Stills, and Nash said about, you know, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Uh huh. <laughs> so that puts you in your generation. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you used the word "old" before, I felt like I was, you know, I, I felt I, I'm comfortable being lumped in there. I mean, I just got my AARP card the other day, so oh, I'm good well, to go. Join, join the club. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I just go back to this five number, or what? I think yep. it may be four to six, but whatever. Yep. Um, for close friends, so if I have a, I personally have a wife and a young son. That means right. I've only got three to four slots open. Whereas my brother who has a wife and six children, it, what does that mean? Like one of the kids is not going to make it, uh, make the cut. Or, and, and does that mean like I'm, I can't get into my brother's inner circle? Well, I, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> uh, it, it, the answer is, uh, I mean, these numbers are kind of, you know, every data set, we look at, we see the same numbers, but they are kind of variable and they do depend a lot on uh, individuals' social skills and, and social cognitive abilities as well. But 
I mean, we have to make judgments about how close we feel we are to people and where we put them and therefore how much time we invest in them. The average number is always about five, but it, it does vary between four and six or maybe even a little wider than that, perhaps. But uh, typically, it will cons- that inner core consists of two close family members and two close friends and then one from either side to make up the fifth. But if you meet somebody really importantly new, and so meeting a prospective romantic partner who attracts your attention is the classic case, then actually the amount of time you invest in that person results in somebody being squeezed out. And in fact, it turns out that when you fall in love with somebody, the attention and effort, mental effort you give to them is so great that you actually cause two other people to be thrown out of your inner circle because they're not thrown very far. I mean, they just shift over into the next layer, as it were, the 15 layer of of what you might think of as best friends as opposed to intimate friends. So they're still there, but they just aren't getting quite as much attention from you. Now, the merit of family relationships, and here you you are rescued, as it were, in terms of being in your brother's uh, social network. Family relationships seem to be much more robust to these kind of decay effects than friendships are. So there's something about the kind of spider's web of interconnections that families create, as it were, by the very fact that they're an extended family that helps to hold people in in place. So family relationships, they tend to be cheaper to maintain in that respect. So you can kind of leave them be um, and not invest too much in them on a day-to-day basis, knowing that when you can get together, you can pick up that relationship where you left off the last time without it having been dented too much. Now, that really doesn't happen with friendships. If you leave a friendship be for a long period of time, you've got a lot of renegotiating to do when you eventually meet up again, if that's, you know, a year or two down down the line. There's a way in which, to some ears, this discussion of friendship could sound light, not superficial, but, you know, like not urgent. However, um, you make the point, and I'd love to hear you say more about this, that this actually is an urgent issue and that the quality of your friendships really will dictate the quality of your mental and physical health. Oh, yes. I think one of the most surprising findings that has popped out of the woodwork over the last decade, decade and a half, probably not much more than that, really, uh, in the medical literature has been the extent to which the best predictor of your psychological health and welfare, your physical health and welfare, even how long you're going to live in the future, is just the quality and number of close friendships you have. And that is way more important than all the things your uh, friendly neighborhood doctor usually worries about on your behalf. All the things like, you know, how much do you eat? Uh, how much alcohol do you drink? Uh, how overweight are you? How much exercise do you take? What medicines are you on? What's the air quality in the place where you live like? All these kind of things certainly have an effect on your health and well-being, but they are pale almost into insignificance by comparison with simply the number and quality of close friendships. So it, we've just published a paper on uh, as a prospective study, so it's kind of looking at how likely you are to develop uh, symptoms of depression in the future. And uh, the best predictor of not developing depression, as it were, is a major issue, and this is for older people, is simply either having around four to five good friends or engaging in around about three voluntary activities. So you can compensate. So by voluntary activities, I mean doing things like, you know, perhaps helping to run the scouts or helping out at your local church or some local hobby or interest group or your local club, uh, sports club, whatever it may be, health club, all these kinds of social things where you meet people and you're you're kind of embedded into a social environment with people. Uh, You can't do both. You can't have five friends and engage in three voluntary activities. That actually makes you worse off because what you're doing is you're spreading yourself too thinly. But you can have, let's say, three friends and and two uh, activities or four friends and one activity or three activities and two friends who can trade off between the two. And what that kind of speaks to me about really is the fact that it's 
being engaged with people, it's seeing people on a regular basis, it's being immersed in a kind of social world, cocooned in, a, in, in this little social world. And that's what kind of lifts you up, makes you just feel better psychologically. And, and that has these knock-on consequences for your physical health, which are quite dramatic and, you know, really affect even things like the risk of heart attacks and cancers and so on. As an evolutionary psychologist, what's your take on why this is so important? Oh, well, this is a very long story. That goes we got back time. To, <laughs> it goes back to our sort of origins, as it were, as a member of the primate, the monkey and ape uh, zoological family. The big evolutionary development that monkeys and apes, if you like, invented as, uh, as a way of coping with the difficulty of successfully surviving in, and reproducing in, in, in the world was the formation of bonded relationships and bonded social groups where they club together to essentially, I guess, watch each other's back because the main thing that's causing them problems is predation risk. It's predators running around on the forest floor or the savannah floor or whatever it may be. And predators tend to go for in, individuals who are on the prey animals that are on their own, if you like. So primate solution to that, as with many other mammals and birds, in fact, is to form social groups as a protection. Everybody clubs together to reduce the risk of being caught unawares by a predator. But the problem is by living in, in close proximity, it's very stressful. As we know, you know, if you're living on top of people, <laughs> it can be very niggling at times. And uh, so it is with monkeys and apes. And, and their solution to that is to form these very close bonded friendships, which just keep everybody else off your back far enough that they don't destabilize the group. So it, it's a very fine balancing act they're doing. This is one reason why this whole family has such big brains compared with all the other uh, mammals and birds. And, you know, we just follow suit as members of that family. This, this is our social strategy as well, except that we live in bigger groups, so we have a bigger brain that allows us to handle more relationships. That's the only real difference. But the way we bond our friendships, the way we bond our social groups is very, very similar to the way monkeys and apes do it. I believe you've also written, you know, from the physiological standpoint about the importance of endorphins. Yeah, it, it, the endorphin system in the brain, which is kind of these little chemicals that are a major part of the brain's pain management system. In fact, the, the name endorphin is a contraction of endogenous morphine because chemically they're very closely related to morphine. But because the body's adapted to them, we don't get addicted to them. And that, they're just slightly chemically different that, that we don't get addicted to them. And they, they're very remarkable. They, they're deeply involved as neurotransmitters in many things we do. But they, one of the things that seems to be very important is they underpin social bonding. So they create this sense of warmth and relaxation and sort of comfortableness and trust and bondedness when we do things with somebody else that releases endorphins. Now, in monkeys and apes, that's social grooming. We have a highly specialized neural system that uh, runs from receptors at the base of every hair follicle in your body straight up into the brain and, and triggers an endorphin release whenever the hairs of your body are mechanically moved, which is what happens during grooming. So grooming, social grooming, the leafing through the fur to remove bits and pieces of vegetation, what have you, that monkeys and apes do is the kind of core to their creation of these bonded friendships, if you like. And that movement through the fur of the hand as they part the fur and, uh, and stroke it tr is what triggers these uh, mechanical receptors at the base of the hair follicle. Now, these only respond to light, slow stroking at exactly uh, about one and a half inches per second. If you stroke faster than that or slower than that, it doesn't set the receptors off. And that speed turns out to be the speed of social grooming. And we see it in humans. You can see the brain firing. If we put somebody in a brain scanner, we can see the brain firing or the brain's endorphin receptors firing up when we're stroked very gently on the torso, for example. And these, although we don't obviously have very much hair anymore, nonetheless, the receptors are still there all over the skin. And as the, they're mechanically moved as you stroke the skin, so it fires it up. And, and we've discovered how to exploit that system more generally so that we can kind of 
virtually groom with more people because one of the problems with a touch-based system is it's just its intimacy you know you, you sort of don't want to go around uh caressing and and stroking everybody in in the community but even though you want to bond with them this is something you do with your intimates but in order to sort of extend this mechanism out to create bonded relationships with the wider community, what we've discovered is you can trigger the same mechanism by a whole series of other behaviours, which now form a core part of our social toolkit, if you like. And these include laughter, they include singing, dancing, many of the rituals of religion, feasting together, so eating socially, drinking alcohol in particular, uh, and telling emotional sub-stories. All of these trigger the endorphin system extremely well and allow us to kind of if you like groom virtually with large numbers of other people and therefore bond bigger communities and and of all these singing really is the probably the best we call it the icebreaker effect because you can literally turn complete strangers into people who think they've known each other for life by just an hour's community singing around the campfire and of course, sing, singing is what we do in church or, you know, many other uh, religious uh, services of various uh, religions. Much more of my conversation with Robin Dunbar right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher, and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. I have a million questions on sort of tendrils of my interest spread out in a lot of different directions. But just to put a fine point on the urgency of this issue, can I just get you to make your pitch to anybody out there who might be thinking consciously or subconsciously, you know, that friendship is not something I need to take seriously for my psychological and physical health? What would you say to anybody who continues to harbor some doubt? Let's be fair at the outset and say, look, uh, some of us are more social than others. Some of us are happy on our own with fewer friends. Some of us, you know, kind of like to become more more social butterfly-like and like to have lots of friends. Basically, that's the difference between introverts and extroverts. The difference is, is simply that introverts prefer to have fewer friends and give each of them more time so that the relationships are more robust. Extroverts prefer to have more friends but um, spread their available social time more thinly and therefore they have less close relationships on average. These are just equally good ways of solving the same problem. But it, it highlights the point that, you know, some of us prefer to have fewer friends, perhaps a little more asocial in that sense. Other people are really like to have lots of, see lots of people and, and have lots of friends, even if they're a bit more casual. So to do without friends altogether, I think, is very difficult. And I think most of those who don't have friends, although for a while they may feel very happy about that, there will come a time in the end, I think, when uh, loneliness will hit you and it will have serious psychological and, and physical consequences. Right? And this is what kind of underpins the you know, uh, pandemic of loneliness that... Um, Really, the whole of the Western world is, has been suffering for some time now in respect of the elderly. The, the elderly often feel very isolated. They can't get out, of course, so easily. They, 
you know, they're not up to going clubbing or playing a round of golf or whatever it is just physically. So they don't get out. They don't have the opportunity to meet people anymore. And they end up with smaller and smaller social networks and become intensely lonely and depressed and fall prey to even minor illnesses that the rest of us would be able to shrug off. So uh, it's fine to be on your own for a bit. You know, sometimes that's a relief, as (laughs) you might say, uh, from the pressures of the social world. But don't stay in that hole for too long. I'm glad you drew the line there between extroversion and introversion, because I mean, I'm I have a little of both, but I probably lean toward extrovert, and I might have forgotten to ask that question, so I'm glad you brought that up. It did bring to mind for me, though, I wonder how you compute the fact that there are these contemplatives or meditators who live in caves largely on their own and appear from the brain scans to be sort of at the apex of psychological health. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the reasons, of course, is that they are often in doing things which are highly ritualized and which we use very often in in religious services of one religion or another to bring people into trance states. So there's uh, some suggestion here that um, going into trance involves the release of a massive endorphin surge, which is why you get this feeling of relaxation and calmness and all you know, peace with the world and the world is wonderful and, and so on that you get from, from going into, into trance in, in many people's experience. Uh, you can bring that on traditionally, of course, if you think of Native American sweat houses and the kind of rituals associated with that. That's one way of doing it, but equally... You can sit in quiet contemplation, and this is the the yoga tradition, as it were, came out of India. You can go into trance in a quieter, more controlled way that often involves control over breathing. And, and this harks back a little bit to the role of singing in bringing on this sense of camaraderie and, uh, and so on that we get in the, the icebreaker effect. Because breathing is very hard to do or to control and to do it very slowly in a controlled way seems to trigger the endorphin system. That's why laughter also triggers the endorphin system, it seems. So, you know, if you keep dosing up, if you like to put it this way, on these endorphin producing effects, you can do it on your own. And I I dare to suggest that if you walk past a gymnasium anywhere in the nearest city to where you live, or indeed you watch a group of joggers running along you will see people who are getting their endorphin fix largely on their own and coming away from it feeling really nicely set up for the day that the you know they can approach the rest of the day's work and activities in a more kind of peaceful zen like way if we might put it that way you know it does seem to be remarkable it's just sort of and it's it, physical activity will do it that's why dancing works uh, in this way for example so You can do it. My sense, though, is it requires probably a special sort of person who would want to be able to do that for the rest of their life and not have a deep, any kind of deep social engagement with people. Because one of the things we do find is if you do any of these activities in synchrony as a group of people, it ramps up the endorphin effect dramatically, absolutely dramatically. Something about doing something like singing or laughing or physical exercise, even uh, so jogging in a group rather than on your own, all these things ramp up the endorphin effect and give you a much bigger hit, if you like to put it this way. And you come out of it feeling you know, relaxed and calmed and the stresses of the world drop away from your shoulders and uh, you can face the day at work or wherever in a much more contented frame of mind. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how to make and keep friends, because I suspect there may be some people listening who are saying, look, I, I well, first of all, many of us are still you know, constricted because of the pandemic, either because there's still lockdowns in our area or we have some nervousness about going out or our offices are not open. But even beyond that, there are, you know, the people out there who just feel like, you know, maybe I moved somewhere for work and I don't know how to go meet people and I don't have any family and friends around uh, or, you know, in this digital era, it's hard to meet people. So what do you say to people who might be sold but don't know what to do about it? 
I think this is the great dilemma of the modern world, actually, uh, because you know, if you go back a hundred years or so, probably a great deal less than that, even, you know, people spent most of their life, you know, within a relatively small community, and and communities, in some sense, functioned much more as communities, by and large. We've become so mobile, particularly since the kind of Second World War, when cheap transport became available and 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 the sort of increasing globalization that's allowed us to move for jobs or, you know, just to go and retire by the seaside in your old age and all these kind of things that we do. But it's one of the difficulties everybody has who has to move is kind of trying to re-embed themselves into a new social network. And part of the problem is actually, because thanks to digital media, they spend a lot of time trying to keep their old relationships going on at the end of a computer, when in fact, actually, they should be getting out. Now, the question is, where do you go to meet people? Uh, for most people, you know, there are two major choices. One is where you work, uh, because, you know, you spend such a large part of your life in the workplace. And of course, you get to know people there and perhaps meet friends and so on. The other is probably church-based type uh, or whatever, temple type communities. You, get, you go there, it provides you with a, a ready-made social environment. Um, for the rest, it's hard work because you've got to go and sort of join clubs of one kind, maybe, or hang out in bars just to have the opportunity to meet people. And that that makes it much harder. So, um, and, and of course, we're kind of sometimes nervous of doing that. That's a good reason. And so, you know, you end up spending more time locked in your room. And it's hard to know how to solve that problem. We've kind of made this artificial environment of the modern world ourselves, as it were, and, and it's coming back to haunt us a little bit by kind of breaking up our natural communities in the way we have. So my advice is simply the best thing you can do is join a hobby club. If uh, Churches are fine if that's what you want to do, but in general, finding places to meet people in a comfortable kind of environment is the key, and, and those are kind of environments are mostly provided by things like hobby clubs, you know, singing groups, uh, theatre groups, uh, whatever, hiking groups, any of these things provide you with just an opportunity to meet people. And, and that's really um, the best way to do it, I think. The other advice I've heard is that if you're feeling isolated or lonely, uh, volunteering is a great antidote. Yes, yes, no, no, absolutely so. And that's kind of what I was really meaning by by these kind of hobby type social group groupings as it were you know sort of volunteering is a great one because because you then put into a group of people because to make friends requires time it, it requires well one estimate from one study was that it requires something in the order of 200 hours of face-to-face -face interaction with somebody over a period of several months to turn a stranger into a reasonably good friend, probably not your best friend ever, but certainly a close friend. And that's a very, very heavy investment that you have to make. The amount of time that's required means you have to be in, in a position to have a reason to see them that frequently. And, and, you know, having a hobby group or a club of some kind that meets regularly automatically gives you that excuse to keep turning up. And, you know, you can't force people to be friends with you. It's something that develops slowly and naturally. You just have to give it time. And, and so it's, it's providing yourself with the opportunity to be able to spend time with somebody else. Of course, once you've built up a small group of friends, that very quickly snowballs because they will introduce you to other people. It's just getting that initial way in, if you like, that's that's always the difficult thing. And it often, it can take a long time, I'm afraid, if you move to a completely new area. What's your advice about maintaining friendships once you have them? The bottom line on that is just keep seeing them. Um, you've got you've got to make excuses uh, to keep seeing them, but be very careful. Don't overdo it. You know, people, there's an optimum frequency with which you should should see friends to keep that relationship ticking over. And that frequency is very specific to the layer that they sit in and therefore the quality of the relationship that you have with them. If you overdo it and uh, you're treading on their toes with respect to their relationships, because remember, it's all very well you wanting to be friends with somebody, but they already have other friends who they're committed to. 
So in order to be your friend, they have to be willing to sacrifice one of uh, their existing friends in some way, unless they happen to be in the same position as you and of not having any, any, uh, any friends at the moment. But most people obviously are embedded in existing social networks. So you have to kind of, I wouldn't say prize them out of it exactly, but you have to persuade them that you're more interesting as a friend than, than the, <laughs> the other friends they have. And that's a judgment they will make. You know, they, they have to sort of go, oh, well, yes, uh, maybe I'd like to spend more time with you. So um, it's kind of the subtleties of getting this balance right where the complications of the social world really lie. What has your research told you about the viability of friendships across gender lines? Um, they work okay, I, but um, it's not as easy as I think uh, everybody would like to suppose. And that seems to go back to a very consistent finding that we've, we've found, and indeed other people have found, but it kind of caught us a little bit left field. We hadn't really expected it, I don't think. Uh, and that is that the two sexes seem to live in quite different social worlds. In other words, their social dynamics are very different. The way they manage relationships and the way they create and maintain relationships are very different. For women, it's very much about engaging on a one-to-one basis. It's very much more intimate in that sense, and it's often based around conversation, or indeed, let's put it this way, conversation plays a much stronger role in the creation and maintenance of women's friendships than is the case for men. Men's friendships tend to be more diffuse and more casual, little bit here today and gone tomorrow and they tend to be activity based so they're kind of more associated with clubs if you like to think of it in those terms it's a bunch of guys that do stuff together it might be hiking it might be just sitting around having a beer in the garden together on a regular basis but the conversation is much much less important for, in that respect for men and then one of the consequences of this that you see well it's actually another consequence of the way feature of the way our social world is organized. So the sociologists who first uh, discovered it, but a lot of people have been working on this since, including ourselves, that have discovered that the single most important feature of what makes good friends is this thing known as homophily. It's uh, essentially meaning the love of the same. In other words, similarity. Uh, Friends tend to resemble each other on all sorts of dimensions uh, many of them are just cultural your likes and dislikes the um beliefs you have about the world and so on but also on features like personality so by and large extroverts tend to cluster together introverts tend to cluster together separately and gender is one of those so around 70 75 percent of women's social networks uh let's say the 150 meaningful relationships consist of women and 70, 75% of men's social networks consist of men. And that, that figure remains absolutely constant from the age of five to the age of 85. Doesn't seem to budge at all. And of course, ironically, the other 25% of um, opposite sex uh, friends and family in this relationship turn out mostly to be your family, whom you have no choice over. You, <laughs> you're stuck with them. <laughs> uh, if you like the ones you choose there's this very strong tendency for the sexes to segregate and we, we really see this very strongly if you watch people in conversations at a reception or some sort of free-flowing social event like that a, a, a yard party or something just watch what happens and and you'll see very quickly by and large the men will sort of all gather together in, in, in little groups of, of men and, and the women will gather together in little groups of women. And it's partly because their interests differ and partly because the dynamics of how they manage conversations is very different. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of just easier to create and maintain friendships with, you know, people who are more similar to you, i.e. people of the same same gender. This is not to say that you can't have friends across the sexes, but it's much rarer than people probably think. So women have this phenomenon called a best friend forever. It's, you, um, it's a sort of almost a foreign concept to, to guys. It definitely not in the, I mean, a guy can have a, a, a best mate, as it were, that he does stuff with, but it, it doesn't have the intensity of the relationship that women's best friends forever have. Uh, if you look at who these best friends forever are, of them are another woman. It's only 15% of them uh, a man. Here's one of the striking contrasts. In the case of men, they either have 
a romantic partner or they have a best friend, as it were, who they do do stuff with. They don't have both, typically. Whereas the women will invariably have both a best a female best friend forever and a romantic partner. So sometimes I have to confess, I I wonder how on earth the social world, and particularly the world of romance, uh, works at all uh, when you've got two groups of people who operate in a different way, if you like. The short answer is, of course, women are much, much more flexible and adaptable in this respect. It's kind of not 100% comfortable from their point of view, I guess, but they're much better at adapting to male styles of conversation in order to fit in with a man than men seem to be able to do in reverse. So, you know, the world is kept going by the by the girls completely. <laughs> I'm ready to believe that. <laughs> Let's talk about gossip. The term generally has a negative connotation, but you you have a bit of a different view. Can you hold forth on that? Yeah, in one sense, this is how I sort of first became interested in this whole issue of, of friendships was the possible role of language in allowing us to gossip. And by gossip, I kind of mean just hanging out over, over the yard fence, really, having a kind of passing time with, with a neighbor, you know, perhaps not having a very deep or meaningful conversation necessarily, but, uh, you know, spending time with somebody. And I tended to see it as really it's this kind of declaration of as I'd rather be here hanging out with you than down the road hanging out with Jim, uh, you know. So it's an, an indication of my commitment to, to you as an individual. This is kind of interesting because you, you then always get, oh, well, isn't gossip, um, you know, generally bad and we don't like it and, you know, people are horrid uh, in the things they say to each other. This is, of course, perfectly true. But actually the original meaning of the term gossip going back to its Anglo-Saxon roots, is God-sib. So it's the peer group equivalent of a God-parent. So it's what you did with the people who are unrelated to you, but in your peer group, your friends, in other words. And uh, this sort of then got transmuted into gossip. Gossiping is what you were doing with your your God-sibs. And in that sense, it's a it's a very positive thing because it's sort of the underpinnings of keeping relationships going, as it were. But of course, nothing comes for free in life. So anything that biology invents, if you like, can always get, end up being used for negative purposes as well, because we also compete with each other. So using language and conversation to kind of try and persuade somebody to be your friend rather than somebody else's friend by kind of saying, you know, don't go out with, with Jim, he's dreadful. He, you know, you'll end up paying for everything night after night after night or, <laughs> or whatever is kind of almost an inevitable consequence. I think it's sort of uh, negative propaganda is a natural outcome of having anything that's designed to provide positive propaganda, which is what it kind of in effect was originally used for. So the bottom line here is that, you know, gossip is to be understood really in terms of simply the stuff we do in terms of using language when we're hanging out with people. And, and sometimes we can use that maliciously or to our particular advantage. But, uh, you know, we're, we're not fools, uh, the rest of the population. They, they know when people, most of the time, know when people are um, using uh, gossip in a malicious way. And, and People are not happy with malicious gossipers, so using negative gossip, as it were. People tend to get, who use negative gossip a lot, a lot, tend to get kind of ostracized because basically you can't trust them. And what really underpins friendships and relationships in general is trust. And if you lose trust in somebody because you don't know what they're going to say behind your back, then, uh, you know, your relationships are not going to work. So you will pull out. So malicious gossipers, uh, you know, it's, it's a short-term strategy. It doesn't work in the long run. And of course, it's very destructive for the community because it kind of <clears throat> interferes with the natural flow of relationships around the community and tends to cause communities to, to fragment. I come out of the Buddhist background and in Buddhism, there's a concept of right speech or wise speech. And then there's also the there's also this great term, sampa palapa, 
or Sampapalapa, I don't know how the best way to pronounce it, but anyway, you get the same. It basically translates into useless speech. But it sounds like your, again, sort of broad understanding of gossip doesn't necessarily contradict the kind of Buddhist conception of using speech wisely. It can be chit-chat as long as it's not malicious uh, or slanderous, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, exactly so. And I think that that's a perfectly sound observation that you make. And in a sense, you know, this sort of idea of uh, completely useless uh, chit-chat isn't to be encouraged either is probably quite right. And, And I kind of think that language and conversation is most useful when you're establishing relationships. Once you get to know somebody well, and of course, I suppose this is the sort of, uh, comes in in long-term partnerships, is you actually don't need to talk a great deal because you kind of know exactly how the person is going to act or what it is that they uh, want or believe without necessarily having to uh, discuss it at great length. So, you know, conversation is necessary and good for building relationships, but it becomes increasingly less necessary. So I have this kind of always this picture in my mind as way back in the 70s, probably or 80s, there was a, a lovely photograph of two old Greek men sitting in the sun outside a taverna on some Greek island somewhere. So sitting either side of the table and just not saying a word, but occasionally taking a sip of their coffee or perhaps a sip of their Russo. Uh, and I always say, this is guys bonding. <laughs> <laughs> they've known each other for life. They don't need to have to discuss the trivia of life. They don't need to have to discuss the great things of life. They can just enjoy each other's company. And I guess that really is that second Buddhist framework there. You mentioned before getting interested in friends and friendship. I take that to be an indication of the fact that you didn't start your academic career to look at this subject. You kind of got there in a roundabout way? Oh, a very roundabout way, actually. <laughs> I started out uh, attempting to be a philosopher, which is, I thought, the only interesting thing one could ever study. So I went to university to, to study that. But it just so happened that where I went to university, you couldn't do that on its own. So I chose to do it in the end in combination with psychology, which I took as the least bad option, really, <laughs> of those available to me. Um, but it turned out to be a kind of lucky break because it introduced me to the sciences in the proper sense, which I would never have done elsewhere. I often think if I'd gone any other university, I'd have just done pure philosophy and I would now be a very bad secondhand car salesman, somewhere, I suspect. <laughs> so, so this was my lucky first lucky break in life. And uh, But what psychology introduced me to is two things, actually. Of course, one was, uh, in those days, you couldn't... Uh, studied psychology at high school, so I knew nothing about the subject really at all. But it introduced me to uh, uh, kind of the brain and the inner workings of, uh, of the mind, if you like, and, and, and serious neuroscience and the like, on the one hand, and, and that whole gamut of uh, the various subdisciplines of psychology. But also, uh, we were taught um, animal behavior and ethology by Nico Timberg, and actually the great Nobel Prize winner, and his zoology uh, lecturers. And that introduced me to animal behavior, which would, you know, would not have happened if I'd gone anywhere else, probably to do even psychology. And that took me off to um, study monkeys in the wild. And then, you know, if you live among monkeys, uh, you start to get interested in their social world because it's so complex and so human-like. And really, as many people will tell you this, who've studied monkeys in the wild, and you know, it's very much like watching a soap opera. Oh, indeed, watching Friends, the TV program. <laughs> and, you, you know, you start getting interested in this very complex social world. And, and in the end, that sort of took me off to kind of be interested in in, in in how the human social world works. And I, you know, at the end of the day, I've come to the realization that actually, you know, the human social world is the most complex thing in the universe. It's, it's much more complicated uh, than anything that uh, astronomers do or physicists do, really, because it's so unpredictable. The social world is so complicated and so dynamic. Um, you know, there are no simple rules. And, and 
This reflects the fact, I think, that it takes us about 25 years to learn the social skills needed to handle this complex social world. So as a, as a generality, the length of time, the developmental period, so the period in which you're a juvenile and subadult in monkeys and apes, correlates with the size and complexity of their social groups and, uh, and their brains. And the same is true of humans. We have such a big social group and such a big brain that it actually takes the first 25 years of life to kind of put the software in. I mean, you have to have the computer uh, in order to do all the calculations, if you like, but the computer on its own, as with all computers, uh, doesn't come pre-programmed because the world is so complex. You couldn't pre-program all the social possibilities that you might ever meet. You have to have an, an organism. Indeed, that's the whole point of having a big brain. You, you have to be able to sort of treat each circumstance as you come across it uh, individually and, and, and work out from general principles uh, what's the best way to behave. Now, it, it really does take, it seems, 25 years to do that. We've shown that with uh, brain scanning studies, for example, that um, at around the mid-20s, uh, how you handle process um, visual cues in particular of emotions, for example, uh, so as to interpret what, what the other person is feeling, um, get switched from, from the front end of your brain where you think about things consciously down into the lower reaches where things are automated and you don't have to think so deeply about them, which, which made me widely observe in the paper we published on this, this probably explains why teenagers struggle so much with their relationships because they're cranking out every detail. Whereas, you know, once you're adult, of course, we never become completely skilled. This is too much to, to expect, but we're sufficiently skilled that we can kind of automate a, a, lot, of, a lot of the detail and, and cope much better with the complexities and ups and downs of, of the social world. And you contrast that with, with say, learning language skills. I and mean, five-year-old child is pretty much at adult levels in terms of the basics of language. You know, they, they can pretty much structure sentences perfectly grammatically well. They get the odd thing uh, wrong, the, the odd past tense wrong and things like that. And sure, they acquire a much bigger vocabulary during the, the rest of their childhood and teenage years. And they can, you know, learn how to structure much more complex sentences. They can tell much more complicated stories, if you like. But they're basic understanding of the principles of grammar and, and how to converse with people is, you know, pretty much adult level by the age of five. And at the age of five, you've still got another 20 years of learning how to cope with this uh, impossibly complicated social world in which you have to live as an adult. Professor Dunbar, before I let you go, can you please plug your latest book and any other books and places on the on the internet where we can find you and learn more about you? Oh, well, my first book that a lot of people still like, actually, is Grooming Gossip and the Evolution of Language, which was published, heavens, 25 years ago, almost another world away. That was kind of fun to do, and it's still widely available. Another kind of later one on the science of love, which uh, was published probably about uh, 2014, something like that. But the one that's just come out, which kind of puts all of this stuff together, and particularly our research over the last 25 years, really, in terms of put it all together in one place and, and show how it's all interconnected. Uh, it's the book that's just come out uh, in, in, in Europe anyway, called Friends, Understanding the Power of Our uh, Most Important Relationships. It's uh, due to be published in the US in January, I believe it is, by Little Brown. And uh, But I'm sure you can buy digital versions of it in, in, in all good digital bookshops close to you in the meantime. Professor, it's been a pleasure to get to know you a little bit and to hear hear about your, your work. Thank you for coming on. Ah, thank you for having me on. It's been great fun. Thank you to Robin Dunbar. Great conversation. Before we head out, let me just mention again the Ted Lasso Challenge. Uh, it starts on Tuesday, September 7th over on the 10% Happier app. Just download it, the app that is, wherever you get your apps. And another way to, of course, get ready is to uh, check out season two of Ted Lasso, which is airing right now. This show is made by Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant with audio engineering from Ultraviolet Audio. Special shout out to Kim Baikama, who's no longer with us, but 
did a great job in her brief tenure here on the TPH podcast. And I should say she is the one who brought uh, Robin Dunbar to our attention. So big thank you to Kim. And as always, a shout out to Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan from ABC News. We'll see you all on Wednesday with uh, Madupa Akinola, who's going to talk about optimizing stress. She's an incredible professor from Columbia University. She's been on the show before, and uh, she's got a lot to say, especially about stress during the pandemic and stress uh, that might come up when you're uh, talking about diversity issues. That's on Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.